Hello, and welcome back to our discussion of the Brothers Karamazov. Today, we are talking about, as advertised, the Elder Zosima, the chapter on the Russian monk. And it's a really interesting contrast with the last book, not just in the sense of what these two passages are saying, what these two characters are saying, you know, the contrast between Ivan on the one hand and Zosima on the other, but also just in the way that these are interpreted. So... At the risk of possibly waxing a little too verbose here, I want to start our discussion with a sort of metatextual commentary. Um, I want to talk about something even broader than we usually do in these lectures, much as I am inclined to that sort of broad interpretation. I want to talk about why this passage tends to be ignored where the Grand Inquisitor tends to be celebrated. Um, and most importantly, like, to blow this out to an even broader, even grander kind of perspective, I want to talk about why goodness is boring. Like, I know that this is a huge sweeping generalization. I am well aware that this is a huge sweeping generalization. But it's also a huge sweeping generalization that is backed up by a lot of literature, a lot of philosophy, a lot of thinking... It's something so common, especially in our culture, that I remember having a conversation with, like, my nine-year-old nephew um, about, you know, why, like, he had been watching Star Wars, and he was really excited about Kylo Ren, who, you know, is the villain of the new movies, and I said, well, what about Luke Skywalker? He's really cool, too. And he's like, nah, bad guys are cooler than good guys. Um, and this is, again, generally understood. Like, I thought the same thing when I was in grade school and middle school. Like, to this day, I have an Imperial Star Destroyer and not the Millennium Falcon or an X-Wing sitting on the shelf in uh, my office just because that was the cool ship. It is indicative of power and dominance, and, you know, it, it's symbolic of this kind of primeval, natural human need to sort of self-aggrandize, to, to make one great. Um, and that's not what good is. Um, I mean, even in Russian literature itself, like think of Tolstoy's Anna Karenina and that famous first line that all happy families are alike, but all unhappy families are each unhappy in their own way. The indication there is that evil is interesting, unhappiness is interesting, tragedy is interesting, and suffering and conflict. You know, it, it is one of the earliest watchwords for any writer, whether it's in literature or in Hollywood, that all interesting literature is bred from conflict, from struggle, from strife. In short, pain is interesting, evil is interesting, suffering is interesting, but goodness, paradise, that's boring, that's dull. There are obviously exceptions to this rule, like, again, broad sweeping generalization, therefore there must necessarily be exceptions. Um, I would very obviously point out to all of the efforts of various writers to produce utopian literature, um, like Moore's Utopia or Plato's Republic or like News from Nowhere by William Morris or even Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward. I find these books fascinating, largely because it's about overcoming these obstacles, achieving some sort of paradise on Earth. But I'd also... It's not hard to notice, it's, it's kind of obvious really, especially in the 20th century, that the, the tradition of utopian literature has very much been supplanted by dystopian literature. Um, instead of faith in a 
brilliant paradisical community like Sir Thomas More or Plato. Instead, we are much more interested in the sort of dark, uh, twisted efforts of governments to provide that paradise in the form of like Orwell's 1984 or Aldous Huxley's Brave New World or Zamiatin's We, since we are discussing Russian literature here. Um, ne never mind all the more contemporary and kind of less socially minded dystopian fiction that has been very popular in recent memory, things like The Hunger Games or um, the innumerable YA novels that kind of sprouted out of that. Um, we tend to think the story of the, the one underdog fighting against a well-meaning if corrupt or well-meaning if ultimately flawed government or societal structure is much more interesting um, than just somebody saying, hey, this is how a perfect society ought to be oriented or organized. Um, I mean, Huxley himself wrote a utopian novel, Island, and nobody reads it, certainly not in high schools the way that they do in Brave New World. Um, it's a fascinating book. I'd highly recommend that you read it, especially if you liked Brave New World. But nonetheless, that sort of tendency, that trend remains the same. Why do we find evil more interesting than good? Um, and I mean, we could definitely just wax poetical on this forever if we so inclined. We could talk about the connection between like the Garden of Eden and the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil as being the thing that we're forbidden to touch or the ideas that sort of Philip Pullman is kicking around in something like the Amber Spyglass where he twist, turns that on its head and argues that, you know, like knowledge was was supposed to be our birthright, that sin was a necessary prerequisite for knowledge. Um, we could talk about all of those various writers who have sort of um, cut away different interpretations from Christian teaching and Christian scripture, be it Milton or Blake, um, any of those sorts of thinkers, how, how they sort of change the way that it's looked. Um, as well as talking about such contemporary things as, you know, the, the anti-heroes sort of dominating superheroes in contemporary memory, how Superman is, is now tormented and, and tortured instead of, you know, this sort of unassailable bastion of, of human accomplishment and success. It's, it's a big deal, I think. It's a conversation that needs to be had, vague and, and huge as it might be, and it especially needs to be had here. It's something that Dostoevsky is very interested in. Like, it's not subtle in this passage especially. Um, we have character after character after character who is tormented, who is uh, suffering, who is, you know, caught up in their own mad ideologies like Ivan or, you know, their, their sort of incredible overbearing passions like Dimitri or even their buffoonery like Fyodor here. Um, we have characters who pride themselves on throwing out Christianity and embracing some more liberal philosophy, people like Rakitin or Biusov. Um, Christianity and the Christian tradition is out. Um, and it's understandable in our culture why this is. Like, keep in mind in Dostoevsky's time, he's wrestling more with a sort of faddish anti-Christianity rather than a, a kind of uh, reactionary anti-Christianity. In the 19th century, there were a lot of changes to the way that Christianity was perceived. Um, and a lot of these had sort of been coming down the pike for a while. Like, ever since the Protestant Reformation, the Christian Church, much as it sort of experienced renewed vigor in Protestant circles after the Protestant Reformation, it 
overall didn't do any favors to the integrity of the religion as a whole. After a century of seeing the popes being dominated by secular powers, and then another century of, you know, Christianity literally fighting itself between Catholics and Protestants, um, the 17th and 18th centuries were largely devoted towards downplaying the role of Christianity in culture at that time. Um, and in the Enlightenment, we were very actively seeking a non-Christian-based philosophy to which we could govern our actions. You know, that is the stated purpose of Kant's groundwork of the metaphysics of morals, that here we had an ethics that was rooted in rationality and rationality alone, that we didn't need God to explain how we are supposed to behave and what we are supposed to do with ourselves. Um, and very much on the heels of Kant, we get the Romantic movement, which reframes how God is even perceived. God is now not some personal being with our best interests in mind, but sort of this abstract force of nature that just sort of sits over us and, and dominates, uh, like humbles us by necessity. Um, but in the 19th century, as well as this romantic movement, we're also seeing a lot of writers like Feuerbach or Schopenhauer who are very much arguing that Christianity is rooted in atheism, that you can take the message of Christianity without the metaphysics, the, the sort of spirituality of Christianity, um, you can turn it into purely ethics with no theology or, or miracle under, underlying it. Um, and they were, were frequently arguing that this is what you should do, that we should absolutely, you know, take Christian ethics, take Christian values, and separate them from Christian theology, Christian metaphysics. Um, and this was probably exemplified best by the work of Schleiermacher and this new movement in academic circles to sort of demythologize Christianity, to, to sort of remove all the miracles and, and make the stories out into to human stories, try and take all of these divine and miraculous occurrences and explain them scientifically according to what we think is more likely to have happened. And in the process, Christianity very much became outmoded. Um, the liberal, secular world was, was no longer enthralled with Christianity. They hadn't been for hundreds of years at this point. Um, it was very passé in the, the new urban, industrialized environments. Science was king and, and religion was out. Um, but at the same time as this was happening, Catholicism, as is sort of the way that Catholicism has been behaving for the last few hundred years at this point, kind of overreacted the wrong direction. Um, this is also the time when uh, Catholic cardinals asserted the infallibility of the Pope, that the Pope could, you know, using their papal authority, make declarations that were absolute, um, that they could, you know, say, say something about the way that Christianity is supposed to work, and that is now beyond the shadow of a doubt, something that had never been posited before. Um, like, papal authority had always been assumed, but the idea that popes were infallible, this was, this was very much brand new in theological circles, and it very much inspired a whole lot of sort of blowback. Um, it became very popular in especially Germany and, and other sort of Protestant nations to score easy political points by taking pot shots at Catholics. Um, like, there was actually a great deal of, of kind of racism and secularism happening in the 19th century to the point that 
Um, the Catholics especially were the victims of a lot of prejudice and a lot of, of um, sort of political denigration. Um, they were discriminated against, in short, which, you know, is kind of weird to say in the 20th century because we look at uh, we look at the problems with Christianity in such a different light. Um, but that's kind of what I'm getting at here. What Dostoevsky is wrestling with is a Christianity that has made a few missteps and that has been kind of gradually outmoded over hundreds of years and is now very much under attack and nobody is standing up to defend it. Um, the characters that he is looking at here, who are specifically Christian, Alyosha, Elder Zosima, um, the various monastic fathers, you'll notice that Dostoevsky spends a fairly significant portion of his time defending them. Um, even here in Elder Zosima's homilies and, and stories, uh, you very much get this vibe that the institution of Russian monasticism is under attack. Um, that Zosima is trying to defend an institution that, generally speaking, nobody thinks is worthwhile anymore. Like, even from the outset in, in Chapter 3, where he's taught, he's delivering his actual homilies instead of the, the sort of life and um, the narrative positions, like, he starts, Fathers and teachers, what is a monk? In the enlightened world of today, this word is now uttered in mockery by some, and by others even as a term of abuse, and it gets worse and worse. True, ah, true, among monks there are many parasites, pleasure-seekers, sensualists, and insolent vagabonds. Educated men of the world point this out, saying, You are idlers, useless members of society, shameless beggars, living on the labor of others. And yet among monks so many are humble and meek, thirsting for solitude and fervent prayer and peace. People point less often to these monks, and even pass them over in silence, and how surprised they would be if I were to say that from these meek ones, thirsting for solitary prayer, will perhaps come once again the salvation of the Russian land, for truly they are made ready in peace for the day and the hour and the month and the year. Meanwhile, in their solitude, they keep the image of Christ fair and undistorted in the purity of God's truth from the time of the ancient fathers, apostles, and martyrs. And when the need arises, they will reveal it to the wavering truth of the world. This is a great thought. This star will shine forth from the east. Now notice there's a lot to kind of unpack there. On the one hand, we see Zosima is defending the institution of Russian monasticism, especially against these accusations that these are idlers, that they're beggars, that they offer nothing to society. Criticisms that are very typical of the more secular age that Dostoevsky lives in, like contemporary Marxists would see this as see this in the same way. What are they producing? What are they making? What is their contribution to the overall material welfare? But what Zosima is emphasizing is that material welfare isn't welfare, that it's just a part of the story. Yes, the, he, he does sort of support, like there, there's this one occasion where he's mentioning these monks who are complaining that they're not getting paid enough, um, and therefore not able to teach, not able to do the work, and Zosima rebukes everyone. Um, he says, you know, yes, they do need more money, and the church does need to give them more money, and we need to divert more funds to in their direction. But at the same time, he says, those monks are also, or those priests, those, those teachers, those monks, are not actually trying hard enough. You don't need riches. You don't need wealth. You don't even need a church, he's stressing. All you have to do is meet in your cottage with you know, 10 or 12 other people, and yeah, they'll make a little mess, but you can clean it up in an hour after they're gone. And all you have to do is teach them the Bible. 
like notice the simplicity of what Zosima is professing here. Like we're not getting some huge theological treatise about you know what is God actually like, though there are sort of hints of that throughout the text. We do get to see fairly vividly uh, Zosima and presumably Dostoevsky's vision of of what paradise would look like, and a paradise on earth, not, no less, like not some kind of heavenly, abstracted, otherworldly paradise. Um, Zosima is stressing. No, paradise is done through acts of love here and now. Um, and that's kind of the thing that I want to emphasize here. Like, this is, this is why it's both so profound and so uninteresting, so boring. This is why it's so easy to sort of gloss over this passage and not take away that much from it. It's not terribly original is kind of what it comes down to. Like, Zosima isn't saying that much that's different from the Bible. Where he does is where he's saying that, you know, this will be paradise and the animals are sinless. Like, there are some actual theological points of contention here, things that I raise an eyebrow at when I read this passage. But the underlying message, the underlying truth that he's talking about, that people need to be humble, that they need to be loving, and that they need to sort of concern themselves with Christ in order to do this, that's, you know, the Bible and Christianity for 2,000 years. Like, that's not new. That's not exciting. It's not thrilling. It's not some sort of moral or philosophical advance. It's not something that you can that you can't find anywhere else. Like, this does not demonstrate the originality of Dostoevsky's thought for most scholars. And yet, to me, this is the core of who Dostoevsky is. This is why I read him. At the same time as this seems so simple, so straightforward, so frankly obvious, the fact of the matter is that this is also very rare. And this is the great mystery here. Like, notice throughout this passage that we are talking about a sort of fundamental and obvious goodness. You know, Elder Zosima tells us the story of that time that he was a soldier and he beat his servant and he felt bad about it and he apologized to the servant and the servant forgave him. And this is just like, this is a nothing story. There's barely any drama. There's no character development besides apparently this miraculous or quasi-miraculous revelation to Zosima, we do get this sort of really emotional confrontation between Zosima and the servant, where the servant is so sort of taken aback by Zosima's behavior that he doesn't even know how to respond. He doesn't think he's worthy. They both end up crying. But that's the point that Zosima is making here. For Zosima and for Dostoevsky, as much as this is supposed to be commonplace, as much as Christianity is supposed to be all around us, Dostoevsky is emphasizing that really it's so hard to do this. Like, Zosima and indeed this entire book is very aware of how much pride gets in the way. And I'm not talking about pride in some abstract sense or even in some, like, you know, seven deadly sins sense. Pride is sort of the fundamental enemy of Christianity on a very basic level. Like, I know that I definitely had a conversation with uh, a student recently uh, where we we were talking about pride and we were talking about how, you know, on the one hand, like, 
my, my student sort of incidentally, without thinking about it, had mentioned that pride was not one of the serious sins. Um, and I mentioned that in Christian theology, pride is considered the deadliest of the sins. It is considered the worst, the most anathema of all of the sins. It is the sin of Lucifer, and it is the sin of Judas, and it is the sin of every criminal, every profound opponent to Christian thinking. If, in fact, love and humility are the two primary virtues of Christian teaching, knowing your place before God, i.e. humility, and showing that place, showing you that uh, relationship to everyone around you, i.e. love, then pride is the one thing that gets in the way of both. If you have pride, and I'm not even saying like profound pride, like, you know, the person who is just so enamored with their own accomplishments that they can't even bear to like talk to other people, or the person who is haughty, or the person who is arrogant. Like I'm talking about pride the way that Dostoevsky is talking about pride here, on this very fundamental basic level. Like to give you an example, like perhaps the best example, um, think of what he what Zosima does after he forgive or apologizes to, to Afanasi, his student, or his servant. Um, he goes to talk to, he, he's on his way to a duel, which is a classic romantic setup. Like so many romantic stories up until this point, even in Dostoevsky's own work, there's all of these stories of men who have to go fight a duel with somebody else. And oftentimes, especially in Dostoevsky, especially in some of the greater Russian writers, there's something magnanimous about this. Like you have this person who, you know, they, they're scheduled to fight a duel, and then they suddenly, you know, dis like change their opinion on the night before that they're supposed to fight the duel. And as a consequence, they can't express it. Like, they have to go to the duel lest they be called a coward and therefore uh, disregarded. But then they do something dramatic. Like, the, uh, I think in one of Dostoevsky's stories, like the or one of Tolstoy's, he shoots off into the air deliberately, and the other guy takes it as an offense, and it's this whole thing. But notice what Zosima does here. Zosima is on the way to this duel, and he actually participates in the duel. He stands before the, his opponent and is shot at, and is actually, like, grazed. His, his cheek and his ear is hit, he mentions. Um, and then he immediately picks up his pistol and throws it into the woods and apologizes to the other person. And we get this really fascinating sort of speech from him. Um, so notice notice what we, what we see here. Um, this is on page 298, I believe. Uh, so he apologizes to Afanasi on page 298. We, we get this sort of uh, conversation between the two of them. They forgive each other. And then finally, he goes. He jumps into the carriage and shouts, Drive! Have you ever seen a winner? I cried to him. Here is one right in front of you. And he's, as he says, such rapture was in me. I was laughing, talking, talking all the way. I don't remember what I was talking about. He looked at me, hey, you're a good man, brother. I can see you won't dishonor the regiment. And notice that that's the priority of the other person. Like, here is Zosima, who has experienced this profound religious revelation, who has, you know, apologized to his servant and been forgiven. A miracle has occurred because, you know, he has reversed the relationship between master and servant here. And you'll notice that Zosima emphasizes over and over again throughout the rest of this passage and into the homilies of the discussions how audacious it is for a one servant to serve a master. Like, who is the master that he has a person who just does as his job service for him? 
Um, he very much emphasizes multiple times, you know, like we need to embrace our servants. We need to be servants together. We need to humble ourselves before our servants and not sort of live in this striated classist society. Um, but then we go on. So we came to the place and they were already there waiting for us. They set us 12 paces apart. The first shot was his. I stood cheerfully before him, face to face, without batting an eye, looking at him lovingly because I knew what I was going to do. He fired. The shot just grazed my cheek a little and nicked my ear. Thank God, I shouted, you didn't kill a man. And I seized my pistol, turned around, and sent it hurtling into the trees. That's where you belong, I shouted. I turned to my adversary. My dear sir, I said, forgive a foolish young man, for it is my own fault that I offended you and have now made you shoot at me. I am ten times worse than you, if not more. Tell that to the person you honor most in the world. As soon as I said it, all three of them started yelling at me. I beg your pardon, my adversary said, even getting angry. If you did not want to fight, why did you trouble me? Yesterday I was still a fool, but today I've grown wiser, I answered him cheerfully. As for yesterday, I believe you, he said, but about today, from your opinion, it is hard to believe you. Bravo, I cried to him, clapping my hands. I agree with that, too. I deserved it. My dear sir, will you shoot or not? I will not. And you may shoot again if you wish, only it would be better if you didn't. The seconds were also shouting, especially mine. What? Disgracing the regiment? Asking forgiveness in the middle of a duel? If only I'd known. Then I stood before them all, no longer laughing. My gentlemen, I said, is it so surprising now, in our time, to meet a man who has repented of his foolishness and confesses his guilt publicly? But not in the middle of a duel, my second shouted again. But that's just it, I replied. That is just what is so surprising, because I ought to have confessed as soon as we arrived here, even before his shot, without leading him to great and mortal sin. But we have arranged everything in the world so repugnantly that to do so was nearly impossible. For only now that I have stood up to his shot from twelve paces can my words mean something for him. But had I done it before his shot, as soon as we arrived, then people would simply say, He's a coward. He's afraid of a pistol. There's no point in listening to him. Gentlemen, I cried suddenly from the bottom of my heart, look at the divine gifts around us, the clear sky, the fresh air, the tender grass, the birds. Nature is beautiful and sinless, and we, we alone, are godless and foolish and do not understand that life is paradise. For we need only wish to understand, and it will come at once, in all its beauty, and we shall embrace each other and weep. Notice the emphasis here. He has to face the shot, and yet he emphasizes that this is in fact sinful that it is wrong for him to face his opponent and thus force his opponent through this complex, messy interaction of pride to shoot at him. Like, notice that Zosima has not just reversed his own perspective, but he's now reversing his perspective of others as well. We've gone not one, not two, but three steps towards a Christian understanding. On the one hand, we have this Christian understanding of, oh, I've screwed up, I have made a mistake in in getting us to this duel. That's step one. But step two is, I am also in need of apologizing to the other person. I have not only sinned against myself, but I have sinned against them. But step three here is recognizing that not only are you sinning against yourself by participating in the duel, not only are you sinning against the other person by, by, by participating in the duel, but you're sinning against him again because you're forcing him to fight a duel. You are in this situation where you are, as Zosima says, leading the other person into sin. Because of this complex relationship of pride, Zosima finds himself where if he in fact stood up to the guy and said, I'm sorry, I should never have challenged you to a duel, I made a horrible mistake, that person wouldn't listen to him. 
because under this situation, Jossima would have disgraced himself, would have disqualified himself from being worthy of being listened to. And therefore, the other person would be totally right to ignore him or reject him or spit on him. The other officers would all consider him a huge disgrace. Like, notice that they have this conversation for quite a while afterwards where they're like, well, what do we do about this? You know, it's one thing to, you know, shoot out in the air or to, like go totally coward and, and, you know, refuse to fight the duel in the first place. But the fact that Zosima, like, embraces him, throws his loaded pistol into the woods, you know, that's where you belong, he says. They say, we're dealing with something original, something real. And that's the key here. On the one hand, yes, goodness is kind of boring. It's been around for 2,000 years. Christianity has changed very little over that time, and the same core Christian values are exactly the same ones that Dostoevsky is repeating. But I think, if anything, that just shows us what those Christian values actually mean. What Dostoevsky is saying is not that, you know, yes, we should all live by Christian values, but rather, yes, we should all live by Christian values, and we should quit talking about them and just do them. Like, notice... On the one hand, this passage implies a very traditional morality. Forgiveness, absolution, sacrifice. But it also requires intelligence. Zosima is not just, you know, some pastor uttering nonsensical cliches up at the top of the pulpit. He's not just some, you know, person who knows a chapter and verse of scripture quoting it quoting it at people in order to feel superior to them. Dostoevsky recognizes this is really difficult. That, in fact, the Christianity that we are frustrated by here in the 20th century, largely because we do identify these people as hypocrites, largely because we do see Christians as being haughty and proud and arrogant, Christians who say the that they are saved and forgiven so they don't have to go forgive others, so they don't have to apologize for their own sins, this is what Dostoevsky is undermining here. Christianity fails when it is done hypocritically, but Christianity succeeds when it is something this honest, this earnest, this obvious, and this simple. Like, it is simple because, just as we've seen with Zosima before, it cuts straight through all the layers of pride, all the layers of, of complex conflict and, and contradiction, all of these character flaws and character problems. Notice that Zosima just, at the end of the day, says, no, just love. Not for fake, not to put on a show, not to impress others, not to get the respect of others, just love. And that sort of gormless, guileless, idiot love is what's going to win the day. We see it from the Elder Zosima. We see it from Alyosha. To some degree, we even see it from the other monks, like Father Pacey suddenly getting very sort of affectionate, very fatherly towards Alyosha when Alyosha leaves the day that the Elder is likely to die. We see this very straightforward, very straight-shooting, very simple Christian love. But the very key to its difficulty is its simplicity. We human beings love to build drama. 
Like, not in the sense of soap opera drama or the sense of, like, high school teen drama where, you know, everybody is sort of overreacting to things. But we build drama in the sense that we make rules for ourselves. These absurd, ridiculous rules about our pride and about what is right and wrong and about how, what we are willing to do and what we are not willing to do. The lines in the sand that we sort of draw about what people are permitted to say, to think, to do towards us. That, and we get very offended when those lines are transgressed. And this is as simple as, you know, the person who is screaming at a cashier in a grocery store because they're not getting the discount that they believe that they are warranted or that they think that they deserve. And this is as, as complicated as the person who, you know, ultimately leaves their, their loved one, their spouse or their, um, their boyfriend or their girlfriend because they don't think that either of them warrant each other, like people who are making the decision that I am not worth loving in some sense. All of this for Dostoevsky is pride. All of it, like even the supposed humility of saying I do not deserve love is at the end of the day pride because we are setting the rules. We are setting the boundaries. We decide how we are to be treated and how other people are supposed to treat us and how we are going to treat them. We make these rules. We build layer upon layer. And as a consequence, all of us are walking on eggshells all of the time. Like Zosimo is pointing out here, I had to go to the duel. I had to face the shot. I had to lead you into sin in order for us to have this earnest conversation afterwards. And notice the inevitability about all this. The sort of trap that sin presents here for Zosima. It is, in many ways, unavoidable. Like, as much as I've talked about Zosima throughout this book as being sort of sinless, this sort of moral center for the novel, and always doing the right thing, like Dostoevsky making him out to be this sort of heroic, even saintly figure, uh, this holy fool, as he calls him, among many other holy fools denoted in this book, Zosima is recognizing not that he is, that love is the, the simple answer to the whole thing, but that love has to be paired with this recognition that you are in fact guilty before everyone. Everyone. Like, we even get these rather absurd sort of discussions about the person who, you know, apologized to the birds in the air for the sins that this person had committed against them. And Zosima is like, well, you really don't have to, you know, theo theologically speaking, you don't have to apologize to the birds. But it's not wrong. You're not wrong to think that. Like, notice that on the we when we think of guilt, we usually think of acts conducted intentionally against others. And when we think of sin, that's usually the way we frame it as well. We, we say to each other, you know, you do not have to apologize for the things you didn't mean to do or the things that you had to do. You know, we have these complex ethical discussions about, you know, is it okay for a person to steal food if it means feeding their family? And notice that Zosima is saying, no, it isn't. There is no excuse for this behavior. It is still, at the end of the day, sin. Is it inevitable? Yes. Is it sin? Yes. Both can be the case. You can be guilty. You can be culpable and still be in a position where you can't do anything else. And notice, you know, philosophers have cried foul about this in, for hundreds of years, and to some degree, rightly so. 
you know, there is this sort of guilt complex that Christians have kind of built for themselves where, you know, they're, they're very much going around saying, you know, you are culpable, you are guilty, you are wrong, God has the right to judge you. And there's like this trap about it. Like, well, I didn't have the choice but to sin. I was born into a world where sin was all around me. And what Zosima and Dostoevsky are effectively saying here is both and. Yes, you are guilty because you were born to this world that was sinful and therefore you are sort of participants in its sinfulness. But yes, also you are perpetuating it, whether intentionally or not, whether you have to or not. You are still guilty. You are still sinful. And the best thing that you can do, Zosima is stressing here, is to apologize to everyone all the time, to beg their forgiveness. Whether, you know, not to say whether or not you are in fact guilty before them, but because you are in fact guilty before them. Because even if you don't see your guilt, it is there. And if you just get a glimpse of God's insight, you will recognize that as well. Like, I think about in my own life, like, just generally speaking, I am culpable in this sense. Like, we talk about things like carbon footprint, you know, am I recycling enough, or am I being environmentally friendly enough, or have I become a vegan and therefore reduced my, my carbon footprint in that way? And we have these sort of unreasonable expectations in a lot of sense. Like, nobody is perfect. There will always be somebody who is living more environmentally friendly than others. There will always be someone who has made more sacrifices to help other people in their community. There will always be someone who devotes more of their time to good works, to the the job that they do. That will always be the case. And that means both it is understandable that you are not doing those things, that you do still eat meat, or that you do still, you know, take hot showers, or that you do still, you know, leave a light on in the middle of the night. Like, whatever it is that, you know, brings you the amount of comfort you need to get to work in the morning, whether it's, you know, driving alone instead of carpooling, or if it's, you know, participating in a job that allows you to pay the bills, but which is a little bit morally compromising. In all of these cases, it's true that you need to do those things, and it's true that you need to apologize for those things. Both are true. You are, in fact, guilty before everyone around you on some collective level. Dostoevsky would agree with these people on those grounds. And what I find so strange, especially in our culture, is that this mentality, this sort of humility before the entire gathered body of human beings has somehow become totally dissociated from Christianity. It is the liberals, the secular world, that is now preaching for, you know, acknowledge your privilege, recognize that you are part of a system that encourages racism and sexism and so on and so forth, that the world is broken in very fundamental ways and it is your job to fix it even though you can't. That's, for some reason, the secular perspective. And it is the Christians instead who are clamoring, no, I am not guilty for these things. No, it is not my responsibility. No, I am not to blame. Dostoevsky is saying both and. You've got to have the Christianity or else all of that claim to guilt is sort of pointless and superficial. There's no solution to it. It is hopeless. Yes, the world is racist, and yes, you can't do anything about it, so why would you try in this case? 
to make the world a little bit better, but can you even be sure that you're doing that and not, in fact, just executing more privilege? Like, those questions come fast and hard from the liberal perspective these days. But Dostoevsky is saying, no, there was somebody who was perfect, namely Christ, and therefore you could theoretically be perfect, but aren't. And as a consequence, you are, in fact, guilty all the time. But the solution is not, you know, to write Twitter posts about it or to get mad at the people who are, in fact, you know, worse than you are or whatever the case may be. The point here is humility. The point here is love. The point here is acknowledge your guilt and turn it into kindness. Love. Acknowledge that you have a debt to pay to society, whether you are thinking of it from the liberal perspective or to, Christ, or to God, if, if you're looking at it from the Christian perspective. And it is frankly maddening to me like that this, these two ideas are somehow divorced from one another. That nowadays when you talk to Christians, they refuse to acknowledge their sort of culpability before society. And when you talk to people who are sort of very concerned about their, their debt to society, they somehow cannot perceive it or understand it from a Christian perspective. To them, God is the tyrant. To them, God is the moral, the morally righteous hypocrite, because that's what Christians act like these days. For Dostoevsky, these two ideas are profoundly united. This is the simplicity of Christian teaching. You are guilty. You therefore do better. You apologize, you forgive, and you love. And notice, this is the solution as far as Dostoevsky is concerned. For Zosima, he can stop any conversation in its tracks by just demonstrating love to others. Just as Alyosha, all he has to do is kiss Ivan, and that's enough to sort of warm him, to comfort him, to bring him peace. Just as he did the same thing with Fyodor at one point. What Dostoevsky is saying is that the solution here isn't complete, but it is perfect, and it is simple, and it is doable. It's not going to save the world. Hugging somebody is not going to fix everything that is wrong. Like, the Brothers Karamazov is too deep and too realistic about its tale of suffering in order to think that it's all going to weigh overnight. What Zosima ultimately is prescribing here is... Honestly, the same thing that Kant was prescribing. He is saying if everybody did this, if everybody loved each other, if everybody embraced their own guilt and practiced humility, if everybody threw away all those layers of pride, all that drama, all that rule-making that we talked about, if we all just disposed of it, banished it overnight, which honestly is in our own best interests to do, it's better for us to stop playing these games with ourselves and with others. And it is also better for everyone else if we stop playing these games with ourselves and others. If all of us manage to simultaneously and all at once do this, that, that is paradise. That is the paradise that Zosima promises. That is the only condition under which it can be done. And notice that Dostoevsky isn't talking about this as some far-off, you know, far-flung heaven. Zosima and Dostoevsky both are convinced that the kingdom of heaven exists the moment you do that, the moment you take that step, the moment you give up your pride, the moment you apologize to everyone, recognize your guilt before everyone, and start loving. 
the way that Zosimo instructs Madame Kotlikov to do. Just love, and the rest will follow. And again, you know, even today, like, when I think of the people who I've spent the most time with who call themselves Christians, who, you know, in many cases I even respect as some of the greatest Christians in my life, many of them are very concerned with theology, and very, many of them are concerned with the, the fiddly details of the Bible, and they have bones to pick with, you know, N.T. Wright or with D.A. Carson or with any number of other theologians and scholars, and they're, they're very engaged in the discussion. And remember, Zosima can do that. Like, he was definitely willing to throw down with Ivan over the ecclesiastical courts question earlier in the novel. But at the end of the day, what Jesus says in the Bible and what actually sort of sets apart a Christian from their peers and their others has nothing to do with their theology, except insofar as they recognize they are guilty, they apologize to everyone around them, they are humble before these people, and they love these people. That's what changes people. That's what changes people's minds. That's how you go from being, you know, a religion that is all talk to a religion that actually gets respect and, you know, recognition because it's actually doing what it preaches. Notice that this is constant in the Brothers Karamazov. Every time one of these characters changes their perspective, radically conforms to this Jesus-first kind of ideal and mentality, typically it is followed with immediate, like immediate recognition and reparation. Like Alyosha, who we've recognized throughout this text as being this character who is constantly in this position, who is very humble, who does recognize his guilt before everyone, who is trying to love everyone around him, everybody loves him. Everybody loves him, without question. We were told in chapter one that that's the way that this works. That these, you know, the other schoolmates, and like even the adults and women and men, all of them, just immediately and for no reason love him, care about him. And he relies on this. He is protected by this. The only character who we see who does have one of these huge transformations and doesn't get that is the story that Zosima tells about the murderer that he meets, Mikhail this mysterious visitor from pages 301 to about 308, I think. Um, this character apparently was guilty of murdering this woman way back in his past, and he's gradually become more and more aware of his crime as a consequence. And he comes to Father Zosima sort of just to hear his ideas. Like, at first, there's, there's no indication of what this mysterious visitor wants or what secret that they are burying. But finally, he bears his soul to Zosima, and we hear the horrible story, and we hear that he's gotten married, and he has kids, and he feels this terrible, awful guilt, which he is trying to sort of receive penance for just in the, the quantity of his own mental anguish, his own mental torment, but it's not working. And he's thinking to himself now that he has to do the simple Christian thing, make a declaration, say the truth to everyone, and come what may. And Zosimo encourages him to do this several times. And you'll notice the guy keeps fighting against this. Like, he keeps coming up with excuses for why he doesn't need to do this. You know, this is what sin, what temptation, what pride encourages us to do. It encourages us to rationalize away, again, these simple, straightforward answers to our problems. And at long last, he does, in fact, do it. At his birthday party, he's got all the officials invited, he's got his family there, and everybody, and he announces, I murdered this person. Here are my proofs. 
And weirdly, again, especially for this book, because so many times the people who do this are immediately rewarded, immediately recognized, and immediately, to some degree, praised, everyone rejects him. Everyone disbelieves him. And Zosima sees this as a kind of mercy, essentially. Rather than, you know, him being immediately carted off and put into chains, he is ignored. He is dismissed. He is recognized as a mad person, a crazy person. And eventually, because of his, his suffering, his illness, as they put it, he dies, like, in a matter of days. And on the one hand, there is something holy about the whole thing. That this person has, in fact, conducted this transformation, despite being in the blackest guilt and self-torment. And we even get this confession from him that the last time that he came to, to see Father Zosima, he was actually thinking of killing him, taking the dagger on the table and plunging it into his heart because he was the only person who knew, who could judge him, um, who could expose him, for that matter. Um, and he didn't. He ultimately resisted it. He was given the strength to resist it. He was blessed for it. But it is complicated. He is disgraced, and rightfully disgraced. He should never have had any of the, the sort of blessings, the pride, the you know worldly accomplishments that he did before. He should have gone to jail immediately. Like He's guilty for so much pain, so much suffering. But at the same time, he doesn't hear. He doesn't have some you know extensive prison sentence. He doesn't have to work it off. The suggestion that Zosima seems to give us is that he has, in fact, suffered for this enough. He, is, he has done his penance in some way. He was not wrong to think that, but it required this final act. It did require him to speak the truth. He would have required more torment, more penance, if, in fact, he had not gone this step. And... To some degree, Dostoevsky seems to be suggesting here that it isn't quite that straightforward. That while Job is sort of the perfect example for Zosima to talk about here, and you'll notice that in, in chapter 2 when he's talking about his own life, he emphasizes that Job is sort of this character that he most keenly identifies with, with Christianity. This character who unjustly suffered and did nev never lost faith, and as a consequence, this mystery, this, this grand mystery, this undeserved suffering is somehow more powerful, more poignant to Zosima than many of the other stories of, you know, justice, in some sense. Um, on this one, in this one case, it seems that sometimes you don't get the conclusion you deserve, but you know, people don't immediately start embracing you because you have made this conversion. But what Zosima does know is that gradually over time, more and more people do come to talk to him because they accept the truth of what this person did. That eventually he was recognized. And that brings us to something that I find perhaps the most important in this entire text, although I have not yet figured out why or how or what exactly it's doing. Um, again, the sort of three ideas that I keep coming back to in this passage, the, the three ideas that I think are the most important from the talks and the homilies of Zosima, as well as from his own life story, is, again, you've got to recognize your guilt and apologize before everyone, which leads you to humility, which leads you to love. Like, guilt, humility, love. 
those are the three key components. If I were, in fact, a Baptist pastor standing up at the front of a church, those would be my three bullet points here, um, as much as this is not the Bible. But nonetheless, these are the three things that Dostoevsky seems to be most concentrated on. And numerous scholars have identified this is the center of the book. Like, this is the chapter where Dostoevsky is going to give us the philosophical key to interpreting everything that is going on around it, which is important because this is a massive, crazy book with a lot of things going on and obviously much scholarly disagreement about what the deal is and what characters we should be listening to and what is really important and what Dostoevsky is really trying to tell us. Um, You'll note that in the actual text, like in, in Peter and Volokonsky's translation, we even get a note during this section, uh, note 10 in Talks and Homilies. Uh, you'll, you'll see Peter and Volokonsky write that Victor Terrace rightly considers the passage from here to the end of the subchapter to be probably the master key to the philosophic interpretation, as well as to the structure of Brothers Karamazov. And the passage we're referring to is the passage about paradise, weirdly enough. Like, the passage explicitly here is, Much on earth is concealed from us, but in place of it we have been granted a secret, mysterious sense of our living bond with the other world, with the higher heavenly world, and the roots of our thoughts and feelings are not here, but in other worlds. This is why philosophers say it is impossible on earth to conceive the essence of things. God took seeds from other worlds and sowed them on this earth and raised up his garden. Everything that could sprout, sprouted. But it lives and grows only through its sense of being in touch with other mysterious worlds. If this sense is weakened or destroyed in you, that which has grown up in you dies. Then you become indifferent to life, and even come to hate it. So I think. And I think that there's some insight there, for sure. But I'm also not convinced that this is the central passage of the text. I think it is important to note that there is this sort of connection with the other world, that the spiritual and the mundane live hand in hand, and that is really important. It's important to how Zosima behaves, it's important to how all of the Christians in this book behaves, it's important to how Christians understand the world. But I think, if anything, the passage that we should really be looking at here is even more obvious. Because twice, not once, but twice in this passage, we hear Zosima quote this one particular Bible verse and additionally, if you were paying attention, the dedication is the same verse. The verse is John 12, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Now, I'm not entirely sure what the deal is with this passage. I do not presume to do... A big theological exegesis of what's going on here, much less be able to talk to what Dostoevsky has in mind, especially because he's coming from the Orthodox liturgy, where I am much more familiar with the Protestant interpretation here. But this is not the first time that Dostoevsky has introduced a huge novel full of big philosophical ideas with a Bible verse that he considered extremely important to the interpretation of the whole text. In Demons, he does the same thing. Namely, he talks, he quotes pretty extensively the passage where Jesus casts out the demons into the herd of swine and the swine runs off the cliff. Like, that is the sort of thematic and structural key to understanding the whole of demons. Here are all of these young students. The ideas, i.e. the demons, have possessed them, and as a consequence, they run headlong over the cliff, destroying themselves. That is basically the best way to summarize that novel. What we get here is not a summary or a key to structure. What we get here is instead a key to theme. 
Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Notice, this is the passage that Zosima quotes to this murderer who is considering not actually confessing his sins. And thus, we should definitely be associating it with this particular choice, this particular act. Zosima stresses it is because he commits himself, because he destroys himself, because he is willing to go into the world and basically bury himself, transgress his own pride, transgress all of the rules that he has circulated his life around, transgressed his own sort of interpretation of how the world is supposed to be. Only if he does this is he going to bring forth fruit. Only if he sacrifices himself, stands up before all and sundry and says, I am a sinner. I have done this horrible thing. I confess to a terrible crime and therefore subject myself to your judgment. I die, both metaphorically and literally in this case, before you. Only then can they bring forth fruit. And notice that this is exactly what happens in this case. This person does, in fact, die, and in first, no fruit is produced. Everyone rejects him. Everybody thinks he's lying or mad. But eventually they come to Zosima, and eventually they start asking him questions, and eventually they believe him. And they recognize this as something profound that has happened. In both their lives, Zosima's and this mysterious visitor's, this is what is happening. Zosima kills himself. Not literally, but figuratively. He kills his pride, he apologizes to Afanasi, he subjects himself to the duel, he apologizes before the other person at the risk of disgracing himself before the regiment, and he accepts the monastic claw. That's also key here. For Zosima, he is recognizing that for many monks, yes, this is an act of pride. This is an act of sort of abrogating the holiness to themselves, the self-righteousness of kinds. It can be done hypocritically. But the rest of those monks who die to the world, who reject their own pride, who acknowledge themselves as the worst people in the world, who take the sins of the world upon themselves, as we've heard before, those monks are doing the right thing. Those monks are the ones who have preserved the image of Christ unsullied. Those monks are the ones who are going to lead us into revelation, as the passage would suggest. And note what's happening with the brothers Karamazov as well. Alyosha is fairly good at this at this point. He has figured out how to sort of shame himself in public, how to, you know, give up his pride and his, you know, rules about how people are supposed to conduct themselves to him and from him. And he has, as a result, brought more fruit. He has died and he gives forth fruit. The question then is, what about the others? Can Fyodor give up his own pride, his own buffoonery, his own insecurities, his own fear for himself, and instead die before others, give up who he is, shame himself not as a sort of act in order to actually build himself up, in order to confirm to himself that he is in fact better than them, but actually shame himself, actually apologize, actually 
be honest, be simple and straightforward, recognize his own culpability and guilt, and not be the vicious old man who is convinced he's going to spend every last cent before he dies, leaving nothing for his sons. Can he do that? And if he does, then he will be saved, and he will save others. That's what he's supposed to do. Can Ivan get past his own ideas, give up his own pride, give up his own faith and his own knowledge, and instead work with others, sacrifice himself to them? Can Dimitri? On some level, there is a deeper metaphorical question here for each of the brothers. It is very clear and obvious in the case of the mysterious stranger, in the case of Zosima, in the case of Alyosha. It is very clear how they are supposed to behave, how they do behave, and how that behavior is a kind of sacrifice before others, which enables them to, in fact, talk to them, to go about their lives. Just like Zosima facing the bullet, we have Alyosha going up to people, having these difficult conversations, proving that he is courageous enough, able enough, like intelligent enough to engage with Ivan or Dmitri or Katerina Ivanovna or even Grushenka, as we'll see in the next chapter, and yet also apologizing to them, sacrificing himself before them, not trying to get ahead of them in any way, but just being straightforward, simple, and honest, even when it is not to their advantage. When he does he produces fruit. Good things happen as a consequence. And on some level, this is what we were dying to see from Snigurov, the poor, you know, military captain who was disgraced by Dmitri. If he had, in fact, just apologized, sacrificed himself, not given in to his pride, then maybe he could have accepted the money and maybe saved his family. But of course, in that situation, it's more complicated because the trap is woven more tightly around him. His son is dependent on his pride, and it is in fact his son's pride that needs to be let go of first. So it is complicated. Dostoevsky is not trying to oversimplify this issue. The characters that we see here are in fact struggling to do just this in many cases. But it is this that they are aspiring for. It is this that will in fact set them free. It is this that they need to do. And Dostoevsky is not pretending like it's not hard. He's also not pretending like it's always possible. For many of these characters, it just won't be, and they will die not yielding fruit. But importantly, until they do, they are profoundly alone. They are hurting themselves, and they will only be hurt by others. Only until the, wheat, the corn of wheat falls to the ground can it in fact, bring forth fruit. That, I think, is the key here. And if there is, like, I'm not saying that I have, you know, a clear interpretation of how this works in every case, but this, I think, is going to be the, the closest thing to unlocking this book. So keep an eye on it as we go forward. In our next section, we'll have another short one. Uh, we will see Book 7, Alyosha, and we'll see what happens in the aftermath of Elder Zosima's death, the sort of foreboding discussion we had at the very end of this chapter, as well as his meeting with actual Grushenka as he tries to smooth things over. And notice, too, Zosima has given us a very dire warning here, that he really needs to go find Dmitri, that Dmitri's suffering was what he was bowing toward, and that he is very much on the blade of a knife here, and that something truly terrible, some real great suffering is about to befall Dimitri. All of that hopefully we'll be able to discuss in our next 
chapter on Alyosha. I look forward to talking to you about it soon. Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Um, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing, and as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.